This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. Our guest on the show today is Dr. Sarah El Gabali, a research data manager at Sci Life Lab, who's not only passionate about data and open science, but also about equity inclusion for individuals from marginalized groups in STEM fields. And Sarah, I can't even begin to tell you how important I think this is. Sarah is joining us today from Sweden, which is super cool. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. I want to dive into your experiences as a research data manager and advocate. But first, let's go back in time for a little bit. Jump into the dinosaur time machine. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about your backstory? How did you turn into the person that you are today? So I don't know where to start. To be honest, but this is a really long-winded thing. But I come from a mixed culture. So I come from an Egyptian background. I grew up in Sweden, and for the past. 14 years I've been living abroad in many places mostly due to work and study which has been quite an experience quite a roller coaster as well but I'm finally back home in Sweden where I work as a project lead for metadata and curation at the SciLife lab and and it doesn't say much does it right metadata and curation no it doesn't say much about what I actually do and it's quite hard because none of these jobs existed a few years ago it definitely did not exist at the time I was doing my PhD to give you an, uh, an idea I did my PhD in colon cancer research and it's completely wet lab I dealt with tissue samples from patients did some you know cell lines animal work all of that and here I am, I haven't touched any of this in years. So, because a lot of this research at, at the time has been what, paving the way to a lot of data that's coming out of it. And even back then, without the mega omics that we see nowadays, generating considerable amount of data that we couldn't handle. And when I left the lab, I, I was just full of questions of what is gonna happen to this data? who's going to take care of it and who's going to look at it anymore and would they understand what I did back then or would they be able to follow it or it's just a lot of or odd something years of research just sitting on a hard drive in someone's drawer I don't know and that question maybe haunts me at night but it also led me to kind of try to help researchers with answering it so yeah you touch on something that i think is really important that sometimes we start rooted in a particular domain but then we identify a more high level problem that we're interested in so for you it was about data for me it was about reproducibility and i think these roles are so important in science but they're often overlooked so after you you finish and you realize like wow I'm not sleeping at night because I'm worried about data. Did you do some kind of career shift? How did you kind of figure out your next role? 
after doing a PhD, it put me off continuing down the road in academia. I'm not the type of person to pursue like a professorship or, you know, or that kind of way. And I get itchy a lot. So itchy meaning like I need change, I need to do something that really absorbs me. And I don't want to be grand writing for a living. <laughs> it's just not my thing. And I kind of somehow regret doing a PhD after having worked in, and I've never admitted that before but after having worked as a research technician for years before the PhD I was like well you know that was just were easy times <laughs> nothing kept me up at night like I didn't have to worry about the data or about what's happening I was fine doing a PhD can change my perspective and I realized there are two ways of continuing down that road of academia either I'll continue to seek grants and you know be highly competitive but we also know that it's a leaky pipeline and not everybody makes it and someone from marginalized group has lower chances of even getting a foot in the door so I realized that probably not the best for my mental well-being as well for a lot of people, we, we sort of go into these programs and either we want to learn about ourselves or we're like really passionate about science. And like the process of going through it and sort of seeing what's that phrase, how the pudding gets made, it like lifts this curtain over how science is done. And then you see what's under the curtain and you're like, oh my God, run away. Like, I don't want this sort of for my career. Like I want to have yeah. a good salary and job security. And I'm just kind of horrified at the practices that I'm seeing. And, and like you said, like you maybe would have been happier if you didn't see them at all. And it's very, it's brave of you to admit that. But, you know, I, I think this view that you have is definitely common. I went through a very yeah. similar experience and especially in academia where people that enter academia are, are regal and scholarly and impressive. Like we don't often want to admit that because we feel like there's something wrong with us, but really, I don't think it's something wrong with us. I think there are deep issues in academic fields, not to say that everything is bad, but a lot of work could be done to improve it. And, and there are not a lot of guardrails and frameworks to protect people when things do got, get bad, which is, completely baffling because for a bunch of smart people we can't even come up with some way of protecting ourselves or protecting others it was it was really tough I have to admit and going through the PhD was like I never want to go through that again I'm glad it's done and over with but I'm much happier dealing with computers than with people <laughs> but it's, it's just funny <laughs> which is funny because at some point it's like you know what? Not all people are bad. I'm just going to go out and create my bubble of good people and find like-minded people and do community building. And, you know, actually got me in contact with the open science community, with the fair reusability and so on. Even then, I'm very careful. <laughs> and I have to say, well, I'm going to create my own bubble of goodness and try to work with those people who are like-minded with building on respect, people who don't view me as a second or third class citizen, you know. As I mentioned, I'm Egyptian. I grew up in Sweden, but I'm still brown. <laughs> so belonging to certain marginalized groups, belonging to different classes and multiple and interse intersectional groups, 
it's never easy, but it's exactly those experiences that made me more keen on building a solid foundation for the people who are in my community. So, yeah. And that's where I founded, co-founded Fairpoints with other two wonderful people. And um, we have a really lovely group of like-minded folks who are looking at how do we make fair the with the emphasis on reusability, how do we make this happen in reality? And what can we learn from each other, regardless of discipline, regardless of demographics? What can we learn from each other? That kind of attitude of coming in and saying, I don't care of your rank. I don't care about, you know, your academic credentials or, or whatever, you know, whatever certificate you've got on the wall. But I want to know what you think about a certain question how do I do this how do we do we do this and a lot of these questions are not answered I mean fair principles are still principles and the implementation is uh, is I guess in in progress it leaves a lot of leeway of for conversations to happen and from learning from each other to happen to talk about fair a little bit let's say that I'm a researcher or someone that works with data I personally have seen all these publications about it. And I feel like sometimes there's a disconnect between reading about these principles and then like knowing what to do. Could you walk us through maybe case studies or examples that exemplify what someone can proactively do toward adoption of these principles and better science? So for instance, one of the things that we often see in, uh, in papers. And it's the most frustrating thing that when you see in a paper, data available upon request. The four words you, you should put on a tombstone because that data is not indeed available at all. And most of the time, even you request the data and it never materializes, right? And we've seen a lot of variations on those four words. So that element of finding the data and accessing the data is extremely difficult. And, and it's, it's, it's often buried. So essentially, literally, those, this is the four words you put on a tombstone but where the data is buried. Some of these, so like <clears throat> the efforts towards improving the findability of that data and reviving that data to enable reuse is to have a meaningful data access statement to tell you exactly where that data lives, pointing towards it, pointing towards the person who's responsible for the data or the GitHub link or the Nodo link or in We've had a couple of people, so we, with Fairpoint, we run events and we have keynote events where we invite speakers or experts in subject matters. But we also have community discussions where we learn from each other and share opinions and, and, and so on. And we've ha- we actually had a couple of people presenting about data access statements and how a good data access statement should like, look like and what it should include. And that's one of the things that we could learn from each other. So regardless of what discipline you are, if you're publishing and you want to have a data access statement, describe where it is, describe the location, the link of link to the data, describe the conditions for the access. What do these people need to do to get hold of it? And who is responsible for that? And 
maybe link the funders, description of the research output as well. And ideally have a DOI for the data. So these are the, the things that we could implement regardless of discipline to improve the findability and reusability of the data. Don't let it die. <laughs> That's what I want to say. That's really funny. There maybe is a tombstone out there that says data available upon request. <laughs> I'm, if there isn't, I'm sure, I'm sure someone will now. <laughs> how do you know if you're a researcher and you're looking for data, how do you know if something is like good quality data? Whenever I think about reproducibility, I used to be sort of very stringent about it. Like we must save every container built. Every container is valuable. And after I ran a registry, I was like, no, nah, man, like we can't do this. It's just not feasible. And, and so I sort of adopted this opinion that, well, some, at least in the, in the space of software, some software should die. Software is like a living entity in the sense that the software that is valuable, valued by a community that is used, that will be the software that is supported and maintained and adopted for, you know, changes in the languages. And then there is software out there that maybe it should die and go away because it's actually using people's time or resources, and that's taking away from other projects. So does that kind of view apply to data at all? Like, how do we know what data is good and what to save? And then when something should actually, maybe it would be beneficial to be thrown away? It's a good question. Are we going to keep all the data forever and forever and forever? Or is it at some point going to be deleted? I don't know. And I don't know what people are going to say in 20 years. Do we need that data or not? Like most funders and most institutes have like a mandate to save critical data that is related to patient or, or medical research to be any private and sensitive data or such, you know, to be saved for a certain amount of time. As for the rest of the data, there is usually like, I don't know, three to 10 years requirement on saving it and it varies a lot right it varies between institutes it varies between country regulations and so on i personally advise researchers to say look you have your raw data make it in a good shape so other people can use it because others might benefit of it even if you don't know even you might not be aware of what someone else might use it for, but it might be very useful for others. And indeed, 50% of research data is used for other contexts. Uh, the other thing is like, so you have the raw data in a good quality or good condition, and then you have the results that are usually published. And between the raw data and the results, you need to keep everything that, that helps you reach those results. Explaining what, what you've done to reach that step of the results. So basically people can trace your step, use the, any script or code that you've done, created for to analyze this data, any parameters that you've adjusted to reach those results. So anything that you need to be make it feasible for someone to retrace and reproduce what you've done. But we know that between the raw data and the end results, there might be a lot of other things that multiple steps in between that might not be required and then saving is actually just taking up more space so we have to also think about how that space affects our environment and how our 
ways of working, either computing with software languages differ in terms of environmental costs and also saving the data and, and saving data in different formats and how that affects environmental, what is the environmental cost associated with that. Yeah, there are considerations and thinking what kind of data that is important. It's what you started with and what you ended up and what you need in between to end up where with the end result that is published. Does this answer your question? Yes, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought up the environmental costs because I think that's sort of starting to come into awareness. I don't think it's always been a priority in the past, but I think it's really important, especially when I think of these huge data centers that are running 24 seven and what the actual environmental costs of those are. You created also, I think something called OpenCider. Is this related to data or is this part of your advocacy work? This is pre-pandemic, first of all, and OpenCider stands for Computational Inclusion and Digital Equity. And it's a resource where I list, it was mainly me brain dumping all of the ideas whenever I walk into spaces, especially with computational spaces, you know, things where bioinformatics, software engineering, computational spaces in within research. And I find them very dominated with a certain demographic and very unfriendly. And for someone like me walking into a room with hundreds of people looking around and feeling like standing out due to, you know, my skin color, my combined with my gender, with my identity and so on. There's so many aspects that were screaming at me that you don't really belong here you're trespassing and I felt like how much that affects the the experience of someone learning and attending like a course or an event and at the time I was teaching courses and I was wondering how that environment affects the learning experience for the students attending it and what we could do to make it more welcoming. How can we ensure that this is more equitable? How can we ensure that they feel comfortable? Because we don't, we want them to be focused. We want to be focused on the learning rather than if I talk in a high-pitched voice with someone saying that I belong to this certain community or, and how does that affect me? And am I safe to come out or not? People who are shy or need diversion or have any sensory adjustments, how do we cater to all that? How do we make sure that people are comfortable? How do we make sure that people can have all of the adjustments beforehand, like have an idea beforehand to quell anxieties about what they what they're coming into and in that space? So all of these kind of ideas and going down the rabbit hole on the internet, talking to people, collecting information, even running some sessions and events and talking to people about these, what makes you feel comfortable in a space, especially when you're going to, to learn and then documenting it in OpenCider. So that was the main reason why I started OpenCider and I maintain it because for me, it's a pet project. It's more like, oh, I found this interesting link and it would help like with ally skills and how to speak up when you're something happens, for instance, in such a training event or session or such. So how would you do this? And how would you handle the situation? Is it your place to speak or not? And then I find another source. Someone already talked about this. So I just link it there and put it there. From my conversations, I created checklists. 
trying to say, yeah, please be mindful of this and that, how you introduce yourself, about the structure, creating some uh, also the mental burden of that is experienced by people who don't have English as a first language. And I'm guilty of that. I, at some point, I feel like I need to just shut down for five minutes because my brain cannot process <laughs> and, and how that affects the learning experience. And, and people are not always wouldn't realize and it's nothing wrong because we're not all in that situation so it's just not to shame anyone it's more to highlight and to improve yeah so that that's open cider I'm glad that we can chat about this because from my experience I've seen that people from marginalized groups have these like unspoken expectations placed on them and it leads them to being treated differently. And then it also leads them to kind of change their own behavior. I think personally, I was in denial about this a long time. I said, oh no, because I'm a woman or you know, I'm Hispanic, like people, I'm treated the same as everyone else. But then I started, I started having small experiences that I couldn't explain. And I started seeing it in communities around me. So for example, there'd be an election for a very actually diverse community of people. The pool of candidates would be diverse. And then the winners of the election would be like one demographic. And I'd be like, well, that's strange. Like, why did that happen? And I started to look closer and I realized that for someone that's in a marginalized group to reach the quote, same level of achievement, they have to work so much harder and they have to be so much louder. And it's really kind of a double-edged sword because if you're not loud, if you don't work harder, then, well, you don't get seen. I guess the question is like, what's worse? Is it worse to be treated poorly or just be treated like you don't exist at all? I, I think those are both terrible. That's one outcome. But then when you are louder and you do work you know, twice as hard to get to the same spot, you get feedback that you are responsible for the feelings of other people around you. Like you are a threat to this person for just existing. And I think the thing that I struggle with is like, how do we deal with that double-edged sword? It feels like there's absolutely no way to win or to be, or just to like, <laughs> to just do your job and do it well, because you're always managing the feelings of other people around you. I honestly don't have a good answer for that I don't know Vanessa what to say this is it's really excruciating as a woman of color I've literally been told in a meeting by someone in a like in a higher position you know there's a certain power dynamics there so a boss along the chain that my face is saying no and disagreeing with him and even though I did not utter a word and I was like I'm sorry but you do realize they come from different cultures different backgrounds my face is just me trying to focus to understand what you're trying what you're saying and has nothing to do with me agreeing or disagreeing because I I'm trying I'm still trying to process so that resting processing phase which elicited a very emotional response and it ended up with us cutting the meeting short and so on what I'm trying to say is even without uttering a word there will be people who are pissed off but I'm really sorry about for the fragile male ego if they can't handle it and 
I say this because it's most commonly coming out of a certain male demographic against people who look like us, you know, and I understand this, but I'm not there. I'm not put in this world to please someone or to cater to someone's ego. That's not my job. So if I have to take space, I will do. And even if I'm going to be called names for it, that's really how it is. I see the goodness in the fact that there are others who do support with Speak Up. And I see this compared to my mother's generation, for instance, who had to endure a lot, a lot worse. So there is progress, albeit extremely slow. But at least it's moving forward. And I hate to see it when it moves backward, but luckily it doesn't happen often. Speaking of which... I just it just reminded me of an instance where I was recently in a conference and a very international conference that I stood on stage talking about diversity and apart from the science of it. And I said, well, where's the rest of your landscape and where's the rest of the people in your ecosystem? And the women didn't support it, echoed and displayed extremely strong allyship. And I've been approached by three separate men telling me I spoke to soft and I should have raised my voice. And I can guarantee you 100% that had I raised my voice a visible higher, these are the same men who would have shut me down and said I'm too aggressive and yada, yada, yada. There is no pleasing that category. There is no pleasing folks who are not put on this earth to please or to cater to. So I take solace in the fact that I had multiple women who came to my side, who came to support, who stood up there, echoed, said, look guys, this is not going to fly. We have to look around. We have to do better. And it did go better. <laughs> I, I, I was just a bit a bit angry to be honest to be told that I should have spoken a bit higher and it should have been more assertive and I'm like oh, how, how do we win how do you win this tell me Vanessa how do we how do we handle this yeah it, it's just this double-edged sword and I'm really sorry you had those experiences I feel like I feel like we could probably have like a total other hour of just like sharing stories back and forth of things that have happened to us that we kind of go home and our, our head is spinning a little bit like, what do I do here? I'm not sure that I have an answer either. I think over the years, I've realized that no matter what I do, someone is not going to like me or someone is not going to be happy with me. And so the best thing I can do is to be sort of true to myself and unapologetically myself. And then if someone has a problem with that, well, that's their problem, right? To step back, I agree that things are better for our generation than our parents, our grandparents, but progress is just really slow. But how could we imagine a future where things on sort of a policy level or you know an organizational level are better? I have some ideas, but I, I'll ask you first. I think, why don't you start us off with some ideas? Okay, because sure. I haven't had time to think about it, to be honest. <laughs> so go ahead. I think where organizations can do better is 
I've just noticed that the demographic has become more homogenous the higher up that I go. When I was in college, I was with a hugely interesting and diverse set of people, you know, ethnically, but also in terms of like interests and personalities. And now I kind of look around and the people that I see around me are predominantly of one type. And most importantly, the people in leadership sort of all look the same. And I have to kind of tiptoe around this sometimes because I brought it up. And sometimes people in private messages like attack me. They're like, you can't say that. And my thinking is that the only way to really kind of start to address this problem is we have to get more diverse people in positions of leadership. And that might have sort of two trickle down effects. One, if you're a student and then you look at leaders in your community and they look like you, you get excited and you're like, oh yeah, this is a future that's possible for me. As opposed to like, when you look up and you're like, well, this person, I don't relate to them at all. How am I going to, I don't even know how to envision my career path because like these people are nothing like me. And then in those sort of meetings where the, the person in, in a position of power, like looks at your face and you say absolutely nothing and they have a problem with that. Well, maybe those experiences would happen less because you'd have people that are from more diverse backgrounds and they would know that like, oh, she's thinking her face is thinking. So I think, I think it comes down to leadership. I don't know how to do that because the problem is the way our system is structured. People sort of drop off along the way because they're like, you know, I'm done with this. I don't want to be treated like this. This is not a safe environment for me. And they leave. And so it's, it's like a very select group of people that stay and then maybe have an opportunity to be in those higher level positions. Of course, it makes a difference having someone in a higher position is coming from, you know, from similar background or from a diverse background that understands the nuances of all of this isms and what happens, like whether it's racism or ageism or whatever. It makes a difference, of course. But how do you enforce this and how how can we on our level affect something that's on, on top of us, right? And that's where the feeling of helplessness sometimes comes in and leads to, ah, oh, well, it's easier to walk away to protect myself and my well-being. For me personally, I what I found works at least helps me in many of these situations is building a relationship with the others around me to ensure that I have allies. I have people who would look out for me, who would echo me. I, till this day, I walk into meetings, but with after having spoken to a certain, like certain colleagues and of, you know, a certain demographic and saying, X person, can you please help me echo this? And we're going into the same meeting. I know I'm not going to be heard because, well, the way I talk or the way my face looks or whatever it is. And if you agree with me, would you be able to echo me and make sure that I'm heard? And that works. Bad but true. It's extra effort on my side. But otherwise, I'll just completely disappear. Having those people and having people who understand allyship and raising awareness about allyship and its importance and how to do it and not have a saviorism so allyship versus saviorism you know so when do you speak and when do you not speak and let someone else do the speaking this these are important skills that we're not essentially born with because we 
is there a problem and so we are not all belonging to all marginalized groups i don't know how it is like for someone else you know having certain impairment i don't know that i don't know how they're treated in the world i don't know how they they're seen by the world i need to learn and to be able to do better by that so these are the things that you know on, on a grassroots level kind of work but I see what you're saying about having people diverse leadership and I wish that was the case but I feel like I'm too helpless like it's a way above my pay grade to affect that kind of change to be honest yeah I felt helpless at times too like even in the past year there's there's three instances I can remember where something happened that felt unfair and I kind of had to make a choice. Am I going to speak up about this? Am I going to find people to support me and have a conversation about what happened and, and try to move on? And then there's always this inclination to not do something and just kind of hide. And well, I, I'll just avoid that person forever. And, you know, I've, I've taken that approach too. It's, it's not really the, the best approach, but it, it is an approach in this space of sort of feeling helplessness, I got some advice from Roland Mosenbergen. He's in Australia. Yeah, he's in Australia. And he also talks about these topics and he's an advocate. And what he told me that is advice that I really like because it made me feel like I was empowered to do something is to try to recognize when someone is in a marginalized group and then try to like give them opportunities to lift them up. So like, if there was a case that, you know, maybe someone invites me to give a talk and I've given a container talk like 10 million times before, I'll kind of say, oh, well, you know, this person over there, they haven't had this opportunity yet to give this talk. Maybe I think you should ask them instead. And I guess that sort of breaks when you can't always see. <laughs> so if someone has, for example, a disability and life, different aspects of life are much harder for them they may actually be kind of purposefully hiding it. And you can't always see the struggles that someone is going through on a daily basis. So I think for that, I try to be just like an empathetic person. And even sometimes when bad things happen to me, I try to think the best of the person until I have reason not to. Yeah, that's the thing. You need guardrails, you need frameworks, you need governance, you need procedures that allows you to act on policies that you have in place. You can't just put a code of conduct policy without having real consequences. That's just empty talk. So you mentioned earlier that you create a bubble of people that, you know, you, you trust and that you, you work with. Can you talk about strategies for that? Let's say that I decide that I want to create my own bubble. Like, how do I go about doing that? Having a common interest with people and is, is a good start to create a community. But having but building trust but with people that takes time and effort and it takes real work. And I think some of the things that allowed me to kind of to build that trust with people is the way we communicate and being extremely clear on things and saying, okay, this is what I'm willing to do, you know, like Here's X, Y, and Z. And having that clear communication style between people is, is a measure of trust. Having someone who beats around the bushes constantly is just not something that you can build on. So look at the way we, you communicate, how you talk to each other. Can you rely on these people? Can, would you be able you know, to ask them for help if it comes to it? Would you be able to 
to have them hold themselves accountable to building a code of conduct together, making sure that this is what our values of our communities, do we stand by this or not? So what we did is uh, doing exercises to look through our code of conduct and improve it and, you know, get feedback from the community and having discussions together. So it's not just about we're just here to talk about science. No, we're here to talk about our values, about how we want to talk to each other, about how we want to respect each other, how we want to handle those tough situations that are going to come up, for sure are going to come up. And what are we willing to accept and what we are not willing to accept, right? And these tough conversations build trust. And I, I think that was really beautiful I and mean, sharing, like saying, okay, so what did we learn from this community? Do we share those values? When I say, you know, there's no bullying, no harassment, being mindful of cultural differences in this, 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 and that manner, do you agree with me or not? I think those questions are very important to ask, especially because often there's a code of conduct put in place that someone copy pastes from another organization. And then when there's actually a report, they don't have a plan for what to do. And then it turns ugly really fast. This is one of the, I think one of the biggest cliffs in academia where people just jump off and say, I'm not willing to stake my mental health in, you know, overall well-being on such things when you look at it in the grand scheme of life it's petty i have to admit our own code of conduct is not up to scratch because mainly we're a small community we're just about but we continue talking about it we talk about this with our people with our people who join our events you know we talk about this and we're saying we're not done yet our code of conduct is ongoing and we as a community as we grow it's a living document and we have to adjust it I really like the idea of a living document I've thought about that that actually those specific terms in the context of other documents I've actually thought about it in the context of like research papers this is a totally different topic but I had this crazy idea in graduate school like well when you publish a paper and you like it's like hard-coded text into a PDF. How does that reflect like when the state of the world changes? Like what if you published hypotheses and then the hypotheses were updated based on like a stream of data that reflects our current understanding of some question that we have about the world? And I went down this, this rabbit hole of like all these different ways that research could be done that wouldn't result in a PDF, but it came around this idea that the assets that we make have to be like living in a respect. So I, I really like that idea. I, I love this. And I think we've actually uh, had Chris Hardkirk, and I'm sure he's going to correct me on my pronunciation. I'm so sorry, Chris. <laughs> but he's got brilliant projects and research equals, and it handles that. It's not, it's handling publications as living entities of smaller parts and they're not just the written word. You can have research outputs come in diff all different shapes and forms nowadays. You have maybe a video of your methods or a animation explaining your figure or, you know, there's so much more that could be done beyond the traditional pen and paper model. We don't use pen and paper and 
to write our full papers anymore. You know, we don't publish them. They're, it's all electronic. So why shouldn't these move into the realm of like being three-dimensional and, and rather than two-dimensional? And I think research equals does this brilliantly. And I would encourage you to have a look at it if you still have those ideas. I think you might like it. <laughs> That's really funny because I have memories, I guess this was before the pandemic of like going to an appointment or something and having to like write down my name and my address and stuff on, on a piece of paper and being like, come on hand, you remember how to do this. And then I have this like moment <laughs> of realization that like I've been using a computer all the time that like my penmanship is terrible and my hand gets fatigued after like one page of writing like basic stuff. <laughs> I get that. It's I don't remember, like I, I write some small post-it notes. I still do that on post-it notes, but that's just to remind myself of stuff. But I have not written like a full A4 page of content by hand. I don't remember the last time that happened. Yeah, it's funny how we, we grew up writing everything all the time. I, I guess that's sort of a, a quality of our generation where like the technology has shifted so much that, well, people maybe in school won't be writing for much longer. Who knows? So I have two introspectoscope sort of questions. And then after that, we'll start to finish up because I want to be respectful of your time. So the first is maybe over the last decade, what have you learned about yourself? Over the last decade, I learned that I have a voice. I've learned that I don't need to hide myself. I've come out years ago. I've learned to be proud of, of myself. I guess being bolder and that has shifted, but it also helped the more the more senior I become in my career, the more I feel like I can reveal and be myself and feel back from the masking, you know. And that has helped me a lot. That's one of the biggest things I've learned about myself, I have to admit. I really feel that. I think most of my 20s, I was just chronically masking and trying to be the person that the other person wanted me to be. And I don't know if this is just something that happens to us when we get older, but I've sort of grown into myself and I've realized that the things that make me different and quirky are actually my strengths. And it's much more fun to just like be yourself and not worry about masking all the time. Or, oh, what does this person want me to be? Like, it doesn't matter. I feel like when you turn off the masking and you're just unapologetically yourself, you start to attract people sort of for relationships, friendships, any kind of relationship really that like you for who you are. And you're not sort of drawing people toward you that like you for something that you're not. Yeah, I think I can relate to that, Vanessa. So also in this time period, what thing that you've built, and I use thing very sort of generously, it could be a community, it could be a data set, it could be an idea. What thing that you built are you most proud of? But the thing that I built is the relationships with the people that are, you know, that I surround myself with. And that have helped me create the communities that uh, I have around me right now. Okay, final two questions. You said that you've traveled around a lot. What is your favorite place that you've lived? So, because I, I left Sweden in, in my early 20s, and you know, at that point, London was like the biggest city, and I grew up in a village in Sweden. So moving to London was a huge shock to the system. 
And I absolutely loved it. I loved every part of that experience and my time there. But I wouldn't necessarily go back there now or live there now because I'm in, in a different stage in my life. Before I did my PhD, I was working with the same group that I was doing my PhD with. And I would play, I was working with them in Bellinzona, which is the southern part of Switzerland. And it's Italian part. It was completely like Italian temperament in terms of weather and style in food. And that was absolutely beautiful. I started rock climbing at that time. I used to, to go to Italy quite a bit. So I enjoyed that. And I loved the weather and seeing the sun every day more or less every day and during the year that was quite a shock to my system having grown up in Sweden and you know surrounded by several months of darkness at that time <laughs> so that was also quite an experience and I loved living there. Awesome yeah I live somewhere that's pretty sunny and I grew up somewhere that's pretty not sunny so I, I can relate to that. Okay so final question and maybe you hinted on this because you've mentioned rock climbing what do you like to do in your free time? So I quit climbing for a while and uh, bouldering. I stopped with that. But with my free time, I mostly go hiking, hiking and camping. So that's my that's my jam nowadays. Yeah, that's my jam. Yeah, I <laughs> running and biking and being outside are my jam too. So I I love that. Oh. Sarah, it was a pleasure talking to you today about data, your advocacy work, and I'm really grateful that we were able to talk about some of these typically harder topics because they just aren't really talked about. And it's kind of cathartic to be able to share stories. And I'm, I'm glad that you're leading these efforts and excited to see where you go and, you know, learn more. So thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. And unpredictable how the discussions unfolded but I really enjoyed it uh thank you for for driving the conversations my pleasure